When I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Is anybody familiar with the text? Okay, all right. So tonight, we're time traveling. We're going to go at the beginning to the mid-400s B.C. You are in Babylon. You are a Jewish exile. You were born there. You've grown up there. You have never been to Israel in your life, you've never been to Judah, you've never seen Jerusalem, you've heard tales of the homeland, you've heard tales of Zion, the old men weep about it. But you don't weep so much. You haven't adopted the polytheism, you're not bowing down to idols, you're not revering statues, you've kept the dietary laws, you observe the Sabbath, but your family owns a business in Babylon that you stand to inherit. You have friends there. You've made your way in the world there. You've got a little bit of influence in your community. And there's a fair amount of religious tolerance that exists under Persian rule. And so even though many exiles are headed home, you're not so sure you want to leave. This was the decision facing many of the Jewish people in those days. When we read the book of Ezra and we read Nehemiah, we might go into it assuming that all the Jewish people just came flooding back in waves over a period of 110 years. They just couldn't wait to get back. That all one million of the Jewish people who were in exile, they headed on back to the promised land. But in reality, only 50,000 of them initially went back. Some of them had a good reason. Some of them took their money, their gold, their silver, their resources, and donated it so that others could go back. That's good of them to do that. There were others who were just too old for the journey. It was considered to be a quick journey, but it was actually about like a four-month journey, so that that was considered quick. Um, So for somebody who uh, maybe came to Babylon and actually had lived through the entire exile, that would be a very difficult journey for them. 900 miles. Maybe if you have young family or you have somebody in your family who's sick or disabled, you also wouldn't be able to make the journey. But all of that aside, many of the Jewish people stayed in Babylon for comfort. They were born there during exile. They knew nothing else. They had attained significant status during the reign of Cyrus. They didn't want to make that journey home. They didn't even know if when you get there, are we even going to be able to rebuild this thing? I mean, come on. People are talking about building, going and building the kingdom back up. What are you talking about building the kingdom, man? Look around you. Babylon's fine. And so they put down the roots. They made the place of sojourning their home. And God knew they would be prone to this. He spoke to them through Jeremiah before the time of returning to Jerusalem had even come. He spoke to them about the coming fall of Babylon and He told them not to stay. Go out from the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life for the fierce ang- uh, from the fierce anger of the Lord. Later on in Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah says, Babylon must fall for the slain of Israel. For just as Babylon have fallen, the slain of all the earth, you who have escaped from the sword, go, do not stand still. Remember the Lord from far away and let Jerusalem come into your mind. Babylon's not your home. Babylon is going to come under severe judgment. Get out. Remember Jerusalem. That's the message of the prophet to the Jewish man or the Jewish woman 
contemplating neglecting God's leading to return and just staying in Babylon. His message is, come out from her and remember Jerusalem. As we come to Revelation 18 tonight, we arrive at a passage that parallels the days of Jeremiah and Babylonian exile. We have Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes. I believe she's Rome, the city that is the cultural and political and economic heartbeat of the Roman Empire. That's why she rides on the beast. I believe that's who Babylon would have been to the first century reader. I think we can understand this symbol to refer to any city of man that thrives as a mill for the ideas and the supposed ingenuity of man. Any city during the age of the church's witness where humans have come together to compact their rebellion against God and to try to make a name for themselves. Babylon was riding on the blasphemous beast in chapter 17, sleeping with his kings in this disgusting exchange of influence and power. But in the end, those kings will turn on her. The very nation states that the network of humanity put their trust in to implement their depraved ideas will annihilate them in the end. And we've seen this all throughout history, and it will be this way to the finish line of history. Governments destroy cities and the peoples in them, don't they? It happens all the time. It's a standard of war. And we saw last week that all this happens in God's sovereign plan. He puts it into the hearts of the kings to destroy the woman. It's a part of her judgment to be torn apart by the kings that she gave her business to. Tonight, another angel from heaven will give John more detail on this, and a voice from heaven will speak and call on the church to be separate from the world, to come out of Babylon, to avoid the temptations of putting roots down in the place of sojourning, in the place of the city of man, and to stay out of the prostitute's bed. So Revelation 18, starting in verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities." Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Father, I pray that your word would be swift, passing from our hearts as we receive it, to our lips, into conversation, that we would be able to learn from your word and then herald it in this world that so badly needs you. Give us a clear understanding tonight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We start by seeing another angel coming down from heaven in verse 1. 
We're used to angels at this point being messengers in Revelation. We've seen them doing this throughout the book. In chapter 17, one of the angels of the plagues was doing the talking. But in chapter 18, it is an angel descending with great authority, and the earth is made bright with his glory. He doesn't have great authority in and of himself. He is created. He's received it from God like any other created thing that has authority. And the bright glory that he sheds over the whole earth is also a glory that is not his own. He is reflecting the glory of the one he serves, the one who sends him with the message. He is reflecting the light of the world who employs him. And the angel calls out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That is not the first time we've heard these words. In Revelation 14, 8, another angel made a declaration there. A second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This is a reminder to us that the destruction of Babylon we read about in chapter 17, verses 15 through 17, is as good as done. It is decreed, it is decided, it is a guarantee of what God will do. And so our first point tonight, if you've taken notes, the harlot must suffer justice for her deception. She has deceived the world, and God will bring justice against her for it. The harlot must suffer, ju- must suffer justice for her deception. The angel's words here are a refrain of Isaiah's oracle against Babylon in Isaiah 21. Verse 9, and behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. In those days, Babylon was too busy eating, and they were drinking, and they were feasting, and they were fattening themselves up, and they thought, nobody will ever touch us. We're the greatest empire of all time. We are the tops. We're the best. You can't take Babylon down. And Isaiah talked about that. He talked about their pride. In Isaiah 21.5, he says, they prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. They're having a party. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. Destruction's coming. War is coming against them. And Isaiah issues the warning here that Babylon is not ready. And that's big trouble because he says in verse 9, it's done. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It's decreed. It's finished. It's done. And they are not ready. And so it goes with the world we live in. So it goes with the Babylon of this age. Sinful humanity sits in their cities. And not just their cities, but their suburbs and their ranches, and they eat and they drink and they are merry. And they think, there's no way judgment's ever going to come down on this world. No way. After all, the world has moved on from the idea of God. Humanity has written God out of the equation, especially in the West. We all got here by a random sequence sequence of events. We're all just stardust banging into one another. All the thoughts and feelings that you have, like when you first held your child, if you're a mom or your dad, and you looked at that little thing and you said, my goodness, immediately, I just love you. I'd give anything for you. Just immediately, you look at them and you think that, and, and, and the world says, that's just a bunch of chemicals firing off in your brain. That's all that is. The world has erased the Creator and declared there's nothing but creation. They speak of creation, the universe, as if it is God. And one day, all these assumptions that they are making will be proven as folly. Babylon will fall. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. God will expose her sin, and God will expose her philosophies for what it is. 
And all of Babylon's efforts to suppress the truth so she can continue on in sin will be brought to nothing when God uses the kings of the earth to make her desolate. You can see the desolation is total, it's complete. In verses 2 and 3, Babylon is no longer the flirty, expensive prostitute. No longer batting her eyelashes with all her makeup and her jewelry and her scarlet and purple clothing. No, she is exposed for who she is. She's not a city of beauty. To use the language of the prophets, she is a wilderness of whoredom. Now she's only fit for demons and animals that would be unclean according to Jewish law. She's a ghost town. The former glory of Babylon is gone. Now it's filled with unclean spirits and birds of death, goats and scavenger dogs, predators cleaning up the scraps. It's the only tenants that now make sense in this wilderness. It's the same way it was with Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Isaiah 13, verse 21. Clearly, Revelation is referring back to this. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures, Their ostriches will dwell, their wild goats will dance, hyenas will cry in its towers, and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. A jackal hanging out in the king's throne room, huh? Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And we're reminded in verse 3 of why all this is happening. She made the nations drink the passion of her sexual immorality. And remember, we established that's bigger than just sexual immorality. It is a phrase that speaks to the nature of our sin before God. We are idolaters. And we choose to make idols out of creation. And when we do that, we offend the one who has created us. And we become like a woman who would reject her husband and say, I don't want you. I don't want your love. I don't want your care. I don't want your provision. I'll sell my own body so I can be self-sufficient and live without you. That's what we do when we commit idolatry. We're saying to God, I'll be self-sufficient, I'll sell myself off to the world, and they'll give me what I need, and you just get out of the equation. Babylon committed immorality with the kings of the earth. Babylon has made the merchants of the earth rich through her lavish ways. This is another reason she's being punished. They cry out in horror. We'll see that as we get further into chapter 18 and verses 15 through 17. They cry out because they watch Babylon go down and they're like, there goes our source of money. We we were making money off of her. Now we've got no way to make money. We've got nothing. Everything that we had hoped for is falling apart. She's poisoned the world with her idolatry from the top to the bottom. She has lured the people of the world in with the promises of pleasure and riches. And now she must pay for what she has done. Because this is not her world. It's not the dragon's world. It's not the beast's world who she rides on. It belongs to God, so he will bring justice down on this world in the end. He will restore it, but before he uh, restores it, he will bring destruction on it. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The world knows this day is coming. This day when the Lord will fulfill His promise. And they know the great cities of this world that they live in and they move around in are destined to be ghost towns one day. I think that's why they keep making apocalyptic movies with Will Smith running around slapping zombies. Pun intended. They feel it. They make these apocalyptic films because they feel it. They look at these cities and they go, this can't last. 
this all can't last. They point to their philosophies and say, they're rock solid, they're not going anywhere, and yet deep down they know, this all can't last. And so they keep making movies about it ending. Come back to the heart of verse 4 in a moment. For now, I just want us to focus on verses 5 through 8, because in them we get vivid details into the nature of Babylon's judgments. There's a voice from heaven that speaks in verse 4, though, and so that voice is speaking as we get into verse 5 as well. And you see the voice says that Babylon's sins are heaped as high as heaven. Clearly, this is a reference back to uh, Babel's original appearance in Genesis 11 when they were stacking up the tower, trying to make a name for themselves. They've stacked up their sins as high as heaven, tried to make a name for themselves. But God remembers the iniquities of Babylon. All of it. He remembers all the sin that He has seen. From the days in which the evil network of humanity first stacked their little tower to the days in which Babylon rides along with the beast trading immorality and power back and forth like money, there's nothing that happens under the sun that escapes the account of God. All the scandals you see in the news, all the scandalous people you see in the news, he sees all of it. All the subversive philosophies warping the hearts and minds of younger and older generations alike, he sees all of it, and he sees those who are teaching these things. All the awful attacks launched at his church, he sees all of it. But before you get too excited about that, you have to remember that he sees you too. Have any of Babylon's philosophies slithered their way into your heart? Caused you to sin against the Lord? Today, yesterday, last week, a year ago? God saw that too. Praise the Lord that Jesus died for the sins that we have committed when we made the mistake of going along with Babylon and that those sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. Praise the Lord for that. But any sin executed by a human heart with no Savior to atone for it, it does not escape the eyes of the Lord Almighty. Big sins, small sins, he sees them all. Any sin that men and women commit with the great prostitute, he sees. And, and, and these are sins that are against him first and foremost. Every sin they commit with other people, every sin they commit against other people, every sin they commit alone, it's all first and foremost against God, and then it affects the people around them. There, there's different types of sin, right? If you kill someone's child... And if you kill someone's cat, there are very, uh, th- those are very different crimes in the eyes of both God and the government. But they're both sin. And God sees it all. And it will all be punished. And with each Babylonian sin humanity produces to pollute God's world, the tower of iniquity just stacks higher and higher and higher. I know people deny this and they think they are escaping the wrath of God and they're living like atheists and they've gotten away with it and they plan to die like atheists and get away with it. Joel Beakey, in his commentary on Revelation, tells a story of an American farmer. And the American farmer wrote to his local newspaper because he knew that the editor of the newspaper was a Christian. And he was an atheist. And so he wrote in and he said to the editor, in defiance of your God, this is in the letters to the editor, I plowed my fields this year on Sunday. I dissed and fertilized them on Sunday. I planted them on a Sunday. I cultivated them on a Sunday. And I reaped them on a Sunday. 
This October, I had the biggest crop I ever had. How do you explain that? And Joel Beakey says that the Christian editor of the newspaper wrote back. He published the letter. He offered one sentence of commentary in reply. God does not always settle his accounts in October. Amen. People think they're getting away with it. They're not. God does not settle all of his accounts in October. A day will come when all accounts will be settled and everyone will have to answer for their sins. And you can say, that's not going to happen. But the God of the universe has revealed himself to us, his self-revelation to us in the word of God, and he tells us it's appointed that man would die once and then face judgment. So you can say it's not going to happen, just like I can say I'm not going to go get a filling in a couple weeks, but the reality is I'm going to go get that filling. It's going to come, the day will come, I'll have to go do it, and the day will come where everybody will have to stand before God and answer for their sins unless Jesus has already answered for them. We get to verses 6 and 7, we see that the voice from heaven calls for God to pay her back as she herself has paid back others. That's justice, right? That's retribution from God's throne, no issue there. But in the second half of verse 6, the voice says God should repay her double for her deeds and mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. That's very different than what was said at the beginning of the verse. Initially, the call is for her to be paid back as she had paid back others. That's, that's just you know, some good old justice. But when the call comes for a double portion, is, is this God in, in, in heaven um, saying he's going to punish Babylon beyond what she deserves? Double what she deserves? I think that's unlikely. Because that's unfair, and God is not in the business of punishing beyond the boundaries of justice. In fact, that's not even in God. He doesn't have to make a choice about that. He is good and pure. There's no shadow of turning in Him. It is not in Him to punish beyond the boundaries of fairness. So what does this mean? Well, if you look at verse 7, I think verse 6 becomes more clear. What has Babylon done to express her arrogant and boastful evilness? How has she demonstrated this brash disregard for God and her hatred for His good and perfect law? Well, the voice from heaven says that she does not just glorify herself, which is a direct attempt to steal God's glory from Him, but she's also guilty of living in luxury. She does not just sit as a queen which is a direct attempt to steal God's throne from him, but she's also guilty of claiming she will never have sorrow for her rebellion. She's a harlot that will never be a widow. She claims her business will always be booming. She will always have another king in her bed. The Babylonians of old said the same. Isaiah 47, 8, Now therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I will not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. The Babylonian Empire thought she'd never be a widow, she'd never lose her children, she would never lose the citizens of her empire. And Babylon says the same in Revelation 18. So how will God punish her for this? Well, he will not just give her a like measure of torment, but also a like measure of mourning. She mixed up her swill of impure abominations in her cup. She made the nations drink it. She didn't just put in glory stealing. She put in throne stealing. She didn't just put in luxury. She put in arrogance. 
And so the voice from heaven says, when you give her judgment, give her a double portion, just like she gave the world a double portion. Let the justice of God pour both torment and mourning in her cup, and then make her drink it, just like she made the nations drink her double portion. So in saying double portion in verse 6, it's not a call for a punishment beyond the boundaries of fairness. It's a call for a punishment that is full. A punishment of full measure. It's a double portion in response to her double mixture. And this matters. People will read a verse like this and say, ah, see, God's not fair. Proverbs 16.11 says, a just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are His work. God gives justice, and God loves justice. And that's bad news for Babylon. It's going to be time for her to live the words of the prophet Isaiah. Sit in silence and go in darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, which is another name for the Babylonians, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. Your time of playing the great prostitute is done. Second point tonight, the Lord will be just in His determination. The Lord will be just in His determination. We've already seen that. I want you to see it again in verse 8. You see how God's just determination will be... It'll, it'll take Babylon and, and bring her to ruin in an instant. People will marvel all the time, right, at how cities have evolved. Like, I, I've been to London before. It's a very old city. I, I spent my college years in Richmond. That's an old city too, but that's America old. London's Europe old. That's a whole different type of old. And you go in that city and you can see thousands of years of human brilliance there. You can see thousands of years of human thought and culture all over it. Well, thousands of years of human brilliance will be brought to nothing in a single day. God did the same thing with the Babylonian Empire at the time of Cyrus. She claimed she would never be a widow, but God had already made her one back then. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You see this idea of the double portion again? She claimed, I'll never be a widow, I'll never be childless, and in a single day, God gave both of them to her. Double portion. It's not unfair, it's full. She receives death and mourning and famine as well. These are words of pestilence. These are words of a fatal disease. Imagine like the bubonic plague. And where you find pestilence in a people, you will find death and mourning and famine in a people. It's similar to the description of the horse of death in the seal judgments. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with the famine and with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. And then what we learned of at the end of chapter 17 is playing out in verse 8. You remember in 17, verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beasts will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. The future horn kings will turn on the harlot. At the end of the world... There is going to be one final awful version of the beast. And it will turn on the evil network of humanity and society will rip itself apart with the mercy of God removed and His judgment raining down. This is how every Babylon ends. 
In the end, cities end up getting destroyed by the governments that built them or the governments that conquered them. The beast always turns on the harlot. This happened in ancient wars and modern wars alike. Beautiful cities are turned into ghost towns by guns and bombs. And it will be the same way in the end. It will just be on a global scale. And when the Lord uses the ten kings in this way, He will be just in His determinations. And He will be just in the double portions handed out. So what does this mean for you and me? We see the just end of Babylon, but what about the church? Well, look at verse 4. There's instruction for the people of God that parallels the instructions for the people of God in the days of the Old Testament prophets. When the voice from heaven first speaks, it says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. It's the same warning we heard Jeremiah issue at the beginning tonight, and Isaiah gives the same sort of words in Isaiah 48.20. Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. Clear message for that generation of exiles. Don't stay. Leave with rejoicing. The Lord has redeemed you from the sin that brought you into this discipline and into this exile in the first place. So come out of it. More of it in Isaiah 52. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. Leave. The Lord will make a way for you. He will lead you out. He will protect you from behind. Leave. Purify yourself. Depart from Babylon. Leave at the Lord's leading. The Lord's leading. When you go to Ezra 1, you read about how God led the people of Israel to rise up and leave. It's just as Isaiah said it would be. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to uh, go, stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Who stirred them to go? God stirred them to go. He led them out just as Isaiah said he would. But as we learned at the beginning tonight, many did not come home. They stayed. They ignored the words of Isaiah without good reason. They did not go out from her midst. They did not obey the Lord. They did not remember Jerusalem. In fact, Babylon had a Jewish community right into the mid-1950s. But once the modern state of Israel was born, anti-Semitism grew so strong in Iraq that the whole Jewish population, for the most part, had to get out just to save their lives. But it shows just how long ethnic Israel Uh, went on living in Babylon. The church cannot afford to stay in the grip of Babylon. The church cannot afford to make a home in the place of exile. Just as Judah was called out of Babel, the church is called out of the world here in chapter 18, verse 4. The harlot is going to be judged. Don't get in bed with her or you will suffer her plagues. That's the message of Revelation 18.4. 
So our final point tonight, number three, the church must stand at a junction from the world's domain. The church must stand at a junction from the world's domain. There must be space between us and the world. There's no way for you and I to physically leave the world and still live in it. You are a human being. You live on earth. We are humans who are citizens of the United States of America. We're humans who live in Yorktown and Newport News and Gloucester and Smithfield. We live and move and breathe in a real world, real locations, flesh and bone. We can't escape that. And we also don't view this physical world as evil. We're not Gnostics who ran around saying that everything physical is bad and everything spiritual is good. No. We just ate food tonight. I hope you didn't hate it. I hope you ate it to the glory of God and enjoyed the flavor of that physical food and and thank God for his provision of it, right? We as Christians live in a physical world rejoicing that God has given us creation to show us how good of a creator he is. So much of what we have in this world can be enjoyed to his glory and to his good pleasure, but not all of it. There are the dark wounds of society that are festering all around us. Wounds inflicted by the dragon. Wounds inflicted by the harlot. And then she likes to come to the wound and take her awful cup and pour her bacteria and her poison and her grit and her grime, her abominations, her impurities. Just likes to pour it right into the wound so that it multiplies. And the human race, they just drink it up and then they puke it back out in all sorts of evil ideologies and actions. And you see it playing out all around us. You must remember what it's ultimately about. It's the opposition of God. That is what Babel's always been about. Making a name for herself. It was that way in Genesis 11. It was that way in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. It is this way now. I would challenge you. Let's do it. Let's just, I know we have four minutes left, so I'll go quickly. It's not going to happen in four minutes, I'll be honest with you. But listen. Just go to the first chapter of the Bible. And what you're going to find is that again and again and again and again, it runs up against the way this world is thinking. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God, we're already in trouble. We're already at odds with the world. They have substituted God with the universe. They're acting like the universe loves them and communicates with them. I feel like the universe, the universe isn't telling you anything. Because it doesn't talk to you. We have substituted God with creation. We substitute God with humanity itself. We've evolved. We're the supreme animal. And we did it through survival of the fittest. Who needs God? We made it on our own. We'll do what we want with our lives and our society. The world rejects in the beginning God. How about verse 26? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We've not taught that, are we? We're teaching our kids in our public school systems that they are not in the image of God, they are in the image of mud. That's what we're teaching them. We've been taught that no matter how much Jane refines Tarzan, he's still an animal, isn't he? We've been taught that human beings are just beasts. So when, you know, man starts looking at pornography, it's just what a man does. When he goes out and starts sowing his wild oats in his 20s, it's just what a man does. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Now we've got a big problem, don't we? Not even the basics of male and female are accepted anymore in the society that you and I live in. 
We're fighting the Lord on the most basic and beautiful difference He's given to us as a human race. And we have taken it and we have distorted it and we have rejected His design and we have said the divine prerogative to create male and female in His image no longer belongs to God and we will make a decision to create male and female. If I'm female and I want to be male, I can change my reality to line up with what I've come to think in my mind. We alter our bodies. It's rebellion against God's design. It's obstinate rebellion against God's design. For sex, for gender, for sexuality, we are just shaking our fists at Him and saying, what are you going to do? Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God means for His image bearers to produce life. But we've created a culture of death. Have you noticed what's happening to our children? From the abortion mills, to our children being slaughtered in their schools by gunmen, to our kids dying in teenage years from opioids, we have a culture that simply does not value life. We have a culture that values power, wealth, prestige. We only value life in as much as it can get you those things. If I can get power and wealth and prestige by saying somebody's life matters, I'll say their life matters. The powerful care about the right issues just enough to keep them powerful. It's not about justice. And who feels that first in a society? The little ones, the voiceless ones, the helpless ones, the children. Be fruitful and multiply, says God, but the children are suffering in Babylon. Genesis 1.31, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Babylon and those who dwell in her are hell-bent on destroying God's good world top to bottom. And it's all in the name of progress. But in the name of progress, humanity is destroying itself. And the church must come out of the world. You can't physically leave it, but you got to make sure your heart's not in it. We have to make sure that when you look at the map of the city of man, you know when you go to the mall, you are here. You go to Bush Gardens, you are here. When you look at the directory of the city of man, the map of Babylon, there should be no you are here for the church. Jesus prayed that we would not fall prey to the harlot. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen to this. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. He, he doesn't ask his father to take us out of Babylon, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Did you hear what Jesus prayed for us? Not that we would be taken out of the world, because we've got to be in the world to represent the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man and bear the light of the gospel in the darkness. Instead, he prays that we are in the world, but not of it. In other words, he's saying, Father, let the hearts of my children stand at a distance, stand at a junction from this world, to be separate from it. And as I close, I want to tell you, I think some believers think they can get away with flirting with the prostitute. They can wave at her, and talk to her, and they can play footsies with her, and pass her notes, and as long as they don't get in bed with her, and as long as they don't give her money, they'll be okay. But what they don't realize 
is subtle flirtation. That's how Babylon gets you. That's her ploy. And that subtle flirtation leads to spiritual infidelity and ultimately leads to drinking from her full cup of sexual immorality. There's two areas we flirt. Belief and behavior. Belief. Oh, maybe if I just say there's more than one way to God, put a coexist bumper sticker on my car, I'll sound more progressive to the people I work with. If I change my beliefs about gender and sexuality to line up with the world, maybe they'll stop calling me a caveman or a bigot. If I give up my traditional Christian values that the church has held to for 2,000 years, it'd be a lot easier to fit in on campus, to fit in at work, to fit in at home. And so Christians start to tinker. A little pluralism, a little karma, a little new age, a little gender theory here, a little race theory there, a little this, a little that, until they've let go of the gospel. And you got them deconstructing their faith. They never had faith to begin with, if they're deconstructing it, not saving faith. What that is, is a picture of Matthew 13, a love of the world choking out the initial reception of the gospel. Don't flirt in the area of belief, and don't flirt in the area of behavior. I can go to that bar with a bunch of unbelievers, I'll witness to them throughout the night. Really? You think that's how that night's going to play out? You strong enough in the faith for that? You're going to be the spiritual thermostat in a bar? You're not going to be a thermometer? A bunch of non-Christians around you? Oh, I know God drew a line in the sand here. I won't cross it. I'll just get close. Is that how that plays out? Ovens are made to bake cakes. Once it's preheated, it's hard to turn it off. Why even turn up the temperature by subjecting yourself to unnecessary temptation? There's enough temptation in this world without willfully seeking it out. And so, if we are to see Jesus' prayer bear out for God's glory in our lives, we must be committed in our hearts. We're not going to give in to the ways of the world. Physically, we're in Babylon, but spiritually, we are in Zion. And the way that we guard our hearts and minds from being lulled to sleep by Babylon's lies and counterfeits is to commit ourselves to the Word of God and to hide it in our hearts. It is the hidden sword the prostitute cannot defend herself against. I have stored up your word in my heart, the psalmist says, that I might not sin against you. And so when Babylon comes to your door for your kids, for your heart, for your spouse, for your neighbors, for your neighborhood, for your community and for your world, and she knocks. Well, open the door up and swing the sword of the word at her lying face, and she will run. Do you know why she will run? Because she's the devil's harlot, and she flees just like him. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourself to the word. And say to the Lord, God, you set the boundaries in your word of my belief and my behavior. You are Lord, and I will not flirt with the prostitute. And she will flee just like the dragon. Bill and Ted's time as we close. Let's fast forward. Travel in time to 2023. We're not imagining anymore. We're talking about reality. You are in exile here. We don't belong here. This isn't... This isn't our our home. I love America. I don't have a permanent address here. 
My permanent address is in Zion. And one day the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And that is just as sure as the destruction of Babylon. So don't put your roots down here. Don't make this your home. Don't toil for the kingdom of man. Don't work for the kingdom of man. Build the walls of the kingdom of God. Fulfill the great commission of the Son. Spread the gospel. Reject Babylon the great. She's fallen. Come out of her and remember Zion. Remember the new Jerusalem. We're in the world, but we are not of it. Let's pray. Father, don't let us love the world. Let us love you. You are worthy of our love. The world certainly is not. Don't let us live in fear of the world. The world's definitely not worthy of our fear, Lord. I pray that we would fear you. That is the beginning of wisdom, that we would be submitted to you. We would love this world less, that finger by finger, you would just take our grip off of it. The things, the possessions, the pleasures, all of these transient things around us. That we would not look at the world as something to be gained. That we would look at Zion as something to be gained. That we would look at Christ as someone to be gained. And that we would rejoice that we have Christ by faith. That we have been saved by grace. We've been redeemed and so we will come out of Babylon rejoicing. But until that day, Lord, we come out of her spiritually. We will not be of this world. In principle, in behavior, in belief, in our practice, in our worship, in what we speak to this world, in what we say, in what we teach our kids in this church, what we teach our kids in our homes, Lord, we will not be of the world. We will not get in bed with Babylon. Keep us from the world, Lord, in it, but not of it. And keep our hearts knitted to the word of our Lord and to build our rock upon it. We ask this for our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.